0: The Old Testament reading is the 80th Psalm. Give a year, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved You brought a vine out of Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it, you cleared the ground for it, it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, and have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire, they have cut it down, that they may perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the Son of Man, whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine, that we may be saved. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable to you, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's uh, embarrassing to find yourself in a situation where you think you'll be recognized and you're not, or to find yourself seeing someone you think you ought to know but you can't remember sort of the name or the situation in which that person may be met you before. Uh, you've probably had this experience where you're like uh, in a big crowd and you see somebody and you, you know, begin to wave and then you realize that uh, the person that is looking in your direction is actually looking at somebody else and you just sort of, whoop that was a mistake. Knowing and being known. I remember there's a, a song by the Doobie Brothers. The Doobie Brothers, that, that dates me. Um, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. There's a song that they sang, uh, What a Fool Believes. Do you remember that song? It's just a tragic song. It's about a guy who uh, had a thing for a girl, and they had a couple of dates in high school, and he sees her after many years, and she doesn't remember who he is. And uh, the song is you know, referring to the fact that he was kind of foolish in terms of giving his heart to this girl who didn't really have much regard for him. And uh, even after the encounter, he just kind of consoles himself and thinks about what might have been. Well, if you want to get depressed, go home and listen to that song. (laughs) Another thing to think about is uh, when it comes to this whole matter, you've probably heard the the phrase, it's not what you know, it's who you know, right? You've probably heard that. And there's there's a measure of truth in that. Obviously, if you know some people and you don't know anything, they know you as the guy who doesn't know anything, and that's not a good thing. (laughs) But uh, there is some truth in the fact that uh, it does matter who you know. Uh, But really, more important than who you know is the matter of uh, who knows you. In Scripture, we're given a couple of important uh, stories along that line or examples along that line. Joseph, as many of you recall, was known by Pharaoh. He was favored by him, rose to be second in command of the entire Egyptian kingdom, the kingdom of Egypt. So everybody knew who he was until there was a day years later when there arose a new Pharaoh, and we're told in Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, who knew not Joseph. Now, did that mean that literally, he didn't know who he was, or did it mean that uh, the favor that Joseph and his extended family enjoyed was no longer the case? He had lost favor. And we know the rest of the story. We know that because he had been forgotten, the Israelites were enslaved and, and uh, forced to serve Pharaoh. Uh, and, uh, they were employed in building monuments to, to the Pharaoh's uh, ego and, and it served his reputation so that the Pharaoh would not be forgotten. Anyway, but there's another important reference to this, to this concern and that's found in the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if you recall, but in the seventh chapter, Jesus says, not everybody who says Lord, Lord is uh, going to be received into the kingdom. Um, There are some people who will approach me and address me as though they know me, and this is my paraphrase, but I'll say to them, who are you? Depart from me. I never knew you. And then they'll protest and say, but we did all of these wonderful things in your name. And he'll say, in effect, no you didn't. Those works were not intended to be works that were performed in my name, but I think what's implied is they were performed to serve your names. Now, speaking of Joseph, in this particular uh, psalm, we have a very subtle reference, and it is is, uh, significant even though it's tremendously subtle because it's intended to infer something or imply something. I think you'll see what I mean. Um, What we have here is... Uh, the psalmist saying, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. And, of course, the complaint of the psalmist is that God has turned away from them and they do not enjoy his favor. But isn't it interesting that he uses Joseph as a point of reference to speak up to God and, and appeal to him for favor? Because, after all, Joseph was the favored son, Right? of the favored wife. And this is where the subtlety is employed, if you, if you get my drift. Israel, of course, is the name that the Lord gave to Jacob. And the change in moniker is really important for a range of reasons, because first of all, Jacob meant liar, the guy who kind of gets ahead by tripping other people up. But Israel means prince, prince of God. And so Jacob enjoys God's favor and receives a new name. And then he has two wives, as you recall, and a couple of uh, other concubines. And uh, he has a lot of boys. He's got 12 sons. But his favorite son was the firstborn of his favorite wife, the wife that he loved and really only wanted. <laughs> he didn't want all of those other ladies. He just wanted that gal. But the other people who are referred to here are related to her and to Joseph. Did you notice that? So we're told before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. So this is like listing the names that are connected, actually, in a real significant way, to Joseph. Who was Benjamin? Benjamin, of course, was Joseph's younger brother by the same mother. So he enjoyed a great measure of favor. And then Ephraim and Manasseh are the sons of Joseph, and they got a double portion or I should say Joseph got a double portion in the names of Ephraim and Manasseh when the land is divided and inhabited by the Israelites. But what is this all intended to convey or imply to us? Well, I think what it's intended to convey and imply to us is that uh, the psalmist wants the Lord to think about Israel in the same way that Israel thought about his son Joseph. He wants... Israel to enjoy the favor of the Lord. Have you ever thought about the fact that, you know, as parents, we're not supposed to have favorite children, but children sometimes suspect that there is a favorite, and that sometimes when you want something, you know, those kids will say to the favored child, hey, would you go and talk to mom? Would you go and talk to dad? We know mom and dad love us all, but eh, there's something special about you and we all know it. Would you intercede for us? Would you sort of share the favor that you enjoy with the rest of us? I think that's implied in all of this. There's a sense in which Israel is longing for God's favor again. And uh, they're coming to him in the name of Israel and Joseph and Manasseh and Benjamin and Ephraim. And what do they say to to the Lord? They say to the Lord, look at us. Just look at us. I mean, uh, we're in a bad way. Uh, We have nothing to eat but our own tears, nothing to drink but our own tears. And furthermore, uh, we're not favored by our neighbors. They look at us with contempt. They mock us. They mistreat us. And where are you? Hello, we're here. (laughs) Please turn to us and help us to enjoy your favor again. And then they remind the Lord of some things. Remember the good old days? Oh, those days were great. Israel was a vine that you plucked from the land of Egypt and then brought that vine to where, you know, Abraham had promised a land, and then you cleared the land. You vacated it. Finally, in judgment, of course, remember, Promise that the Lord made to Abraham in the fifteenth chapter with the covenant that he makes with Abraham that that he wasn't going to inherit the land right then. There was going to be a period of time in which his descendants would serve Pharaoh in Egypt because the sins of the Ammonites had not reached their full measure. In other words, they had some more sinning to do before they were judged. But they would be judged and Israel would be the instrument of God's judgment on them and then God would give to Israel the land that the Ammonites had formerly possessed. So he clears the land, uses them to do it, and he plants them in that land and they prosper. It's almost like this uh, you know, image that we have of the mustard seed in the New Testament where the where the tree, the mustard tree grows, tiny seed grows to a great size, and all the birds of the air come to rest in its branches. That's the situation or the, sort of the image that we have here. We see that the, they're so blessed that the, that the people of Israel grow to almost monstrous size. Do you see that in verses 10 and 11? The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. In other words, the cedars of Lebanon are over, well, sort of they're in the shadow of the, 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 the great vine that, is, that Israel has become. And then, Uh, The branches uh, extend to the sea, the Mediterranean, the shoots to the river, the Jordan. Those were good days. Remember those days? We remember those days. We'd like you to remember those days. You helped us to prosper. Why have you, then, broken down the walls? Do you see that in verse 12? Why, then, have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? Not just that. I mean, wild animals ravage the, the, this, uh, tr- this vine that you've planted. And everyone who moves along and passes it feeds on it. We're being taken advantage of. We need you to respond to, to our call for help. Please come and help us. Now, as we read between the lines, we can see that the Lord is angry or has been angry with them. Um, we 're told there in verse uh, four that the, the, that the Lord of hosts is angry with his people 's prayers Have you ever considered the possibility that that the prayers that you pray don 't please god there 's something about them or about you that makes the prayers unfit to be brought before god we 're told something to this effect in the book of James, the letter the Epistle of James in the New Testament where people ask for things from God and they don't receive because the intention of the prayer is to spend what has been received upon the lust of the recipient. God can't bless that. God's not going to bless something that's going to damn you. By the way, that word is a theological word. Bring judgment on you. God's not going to do something that's not in your best interest and doesn't glorify Him. What glorifies Him is what is in your best interest. The glory of God is a man fully alive. That's a marvelous statement. Irenaeus said that. And that's really what God wants to do is He wants to to work in our lives in such a way, to shine upon us in such a way that we flourish to His glory, the glory of His name. So, they remind him, you've planted this vine and this fruit that is being stolen by the beasts and by those who pass by, it belongs to you. By the way, this is a, this is a way uh, to reason with God that, that we see many times in Scripture. We can reason with God. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, but when we make our case to God, we can reason with him and give him reasons to answer our prayers. Here we see the Israelites saying or the psalmist saying, uh, the reason you need to do this is this, this vine is yours and you're the one who's being robbed. Look after your own interests. Look after this vine that you've planted. Do it for your namesake, for your glory. And if you do that, then we'll praise you and we'll explain to others how you've delivered us. So take back what's yours. Now, Implicit in all of this is uh, a reality that I think we all understand intuitively, and that is uh, the reason why God is angry with them is because they turned away from him. And what follows is God turning away from them, and because God has turned away from them, they experience God's displeasure, his wrath, his neglect, and and. As they feel that, what happens? They turn back to him. And now that they've turned back to him in repentance, they're calling out to him for, the, for him to turn back to them. Did you follow all that? <laughs> so this is the situation we find ourselves in. Turn again, O oh, uh, God of hosts. We see that stated in verse 14. And then they reason with him uh, in, a, in another way. Uh, you can see in verses 15 and 17 the nature of that uh, argument that they present to him. Essentially, they're saying, if you don't do it for us, at least do it for your son. At least do it for your son. Look at verse 15. So, so, in fact, let let me go back to verse 14. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. And then uh, skip a verse, verse 17. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. So as I stated, if you're not going to do it for us, at least do it for him. But who is he talking about here? Who is this son of man? Now, what we're looking at now is code. An oblique reference to the second person of the Trinity, our Savior, who identified himself as the Son of Man. And when Jesus said, I am the Son of Man, and in Matthew's gospel he said that seven times. That's that's noteworthy. Matthew was addressed to Jewish believers. They kept track of things like this. Seven. Divine. God's handiwork, right? And uh, this is, of course, also a reference to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Let me read that passage to you. This is, uh, of course, a reference to the Son of Man who is the Messiah. This is Daniel. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was uh, was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, the last time that Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man is in Matthew chapter 24, and it's verse 27, and Jesus said this, For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. The Son of Man. He's the favored Son, I hope you know. He's the one upon whom His Father's favor rests. And it's because we pray to the Father in His name that we're riding on His coattails, so to speak. Getting back to that Statement I made earlier about the favored son and coming and asking for help from that person. So that person represents your interest to the father or your mother or whomever. That's what we have here. That's why uh, we pray in his name is because he is the favored son. And our hope, our hope is that when God turns to us, it won't be in wrath, but will be with favor. And that's what's implied with this reference to His face shining, shining uh, in verse 3, in verse 7, in verse 14, and then in verse 19. Restore us, O Lord of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Another thing that's marvelous about the imagery here, of course, is uh, when the sun shines upon those vegetables that you've planted, maybe, or maybe not, (laughs) it's a good thing. The sun nourishes those plants and uh, they grow and they produce fruit. When God's favor is enjoyed by his people, when his face shines in that way upon us, then we enjoy that favor and are nourished and produce fruit. This is what he's looking for. Now, at the very end, we see there again in verse 14 an appeal. To the Lord, have regard for this vine. Turn, in other words, and nourish us. Restore those happy days that we used to have or used to know. Remember that song that came out in the 1930s, Happy Days Are Here Again? Now I've created another earworm that's going to go with you throughout the day. But uh, the second line in that song is marvelous to consider. The skies above are clear again. Implying that what? The light is shining, nourishing the soil, nourishing the earth, nourishing you and me. Now, as I've preached this psalm, obviously, I've done so thinking about Israel and using the pronoun we. And uh, as a church, this psalm applies to us as God's people. But it can also apply to the me. We can move from the we to the me. When you think about your own life, where are you right now? Do you enjoy God's favor the way maybe you once, or the, may, the way you would like to? Uh, or have you lost a sense of God's favor? Maybe there's a sense in which, perhaps through because, through because through your own stupidity or your own unfaithfulness, you are experiencing a period in your life where you don't feel that favor, you know that favor like you once did. Now, that's not to say that Every single thing that goes wrong in your life is due to some personal failure on your part. But one of the things we see both in Scripture and in the history of the church is the place to begin when you are evaluating whether or not you know the things that are going wrong in your life uh, have some basis uh, in your behavior is asking yourself that question: Why is this happening to me? Have I done something to deserve this? And if you have, what do you do? You turn away from your sin. You turn to the Lord and seek his favor and call upon him and ask him to turn back in your direction and let his light shine on you. Now here's another question. Maybe you're at that place in life and you've sort of like considered the possibility that, yeah, then maybe that's me. Is that just sort of entertaining the possibility enough to make a real change in your life? In other words, are you going to do something about it? And if you're not, what would it take? What would it take for God to get your attention? I remember thinking that very thing after I had lived through the Northridge earthquake in 1992, I think it was, in the Los Angeles area. I was not far from the epicenter. And I remember as I listened to the radio, as the reporters talked about the the earthquake, they were really shook up. You could tell it by the way their voices quivered. They thought maybe this was the big one. And it was pretty significant. It was pretty close to a 7 on the Richter scale. And I remember uh, uh, as I was flying out of the city and I could literally see the plumes of gas flame all over the place and smoke and broken windows, I remember thinking to myself, if this doesn't catch our attention, what would it take? What would it take? We're really good at explaining things away. Oh, it's just tectonic plates shifting. These things happen. In God's providence, things happen for a reason. Think about your own life. Where are you? Do you enjoy God's favor? Is there a need for you to turn back to God and ask him to turn back toward you? If that's the case, I pray that that'll happen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we all find ourselves in in situations in the course of our lives where we know we've wandered into something we shouldn't have wandered into. At those moments, Lord, give us the grace and the humility to admit that we've really done some dumb things and we've sinned. And when we've done that, when we've confessed our sins, help us, Lord, to call out to you for mercy and for grace knowing that you are a God who is full of compassion and has just been waiting for us to do that. And help us, Lord, to enjoy your favor once again. In Christ's name, amen.